0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.
2: Thank you very much, and good morning. Wonderful to see you. It's um, 50 years, and I regret to say I do remember it, since the second wave of feminism uh, got going. And and time to reflect on where we are. So we've got progress in some areas. We've got more women in Parliament. We've got more women in the boardroom and a handful of CEOs. So even the BBC is lumbering towards better gender balance in its representation. But what has budged at the same time is the gap between elites and uh, the rest of us. Uh, So you've got a gap equally between successful women and less successful women. So the question we're going to look at this morning is whether that gap, whether the success that feminism has had in penetrating the elites is perhaps bad for sisterhood. Is there solidarity? Is the success of of, of an elite uh, group of women good for all women or not? Um, Are female care workers and CEOs really still on the same side? And to, um, to discuss this, we have um, an eminent uh, panel, uh, beginning on my far left with Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a distinguished professor of law at UCLA. Um, her books include Mapping the Margins. She's, um, she's an expert on race and gender, an expert on many things, actually. <laughs> um, to my immediate left, Margaret Hefferman, uh, entrepreneur, one of those successful CEOs uh, turned author. Her book, Willful Blindness, was uh, financial times business book of the decade, which is pretty uh, pretty impressive. Um, and to my right, Miriam Francois, who is a political commentator, theorist, and uh, broadcaster, focuses on, on Islam and feminism and the Middle East. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say on the subject. And I'm going to ask them to begin. Um, uh, Miriam, perhaps uh, you could uh, begin to... An- Tell us, uh, to address the, the theme of the de- the debate in four minutes, sisters and sisterhood in four minutes, is sisterhood Are the female
1: elite threatening the sisterhood? <laughs> um, I b- would probably want to start out by unpicking uh, a lot of the terms in that. So um, who, who gets to define who this elite are? How are we defining success? Um, are we taken over now w- within discourses on feminism by... Um, ideas that are being defined by a global capitalist system according to which essentially the measure of someone's worth is their productive capability within this broader system and the extent to which that comes to define our priorities within feminism. Uh, So the elite are these quote-unquote successful women running big companies and earning lots of money. Um, But essentially you could flip it in another way and say they're Uh, they're part of a very small elite that uh, requires the exploitation of a large number of people, male and female, uh, in order to accrue an increasingly significant amount of wealth uh, towards an increasingly small number of people. And so I'm not sure that they'd be my elite or my notion of what would be success. And then when it comes to the notion of sisterhood, I find the term a little bit fluffy, personally. I prefer the term solidarity, which I think has much more um, implications for notions of mutuality, accountability, uh, and recognitions of common interests. I would even want to unpick the notion that women as a category uh, are necessarily bound by shared experiences. (laughs) I think even within the same societies, women experience very different versions um, of quote-unquote, equality or inequality, prejudice um, and so it's therefore difficult to talk about shared struggles uh, in any meaningful sense without looking at the broader um, power relations within which individual women find themselves. Um, and so more if I need to just maybe end on this note, I'm not personally that interested I'm not saying it's an irrelevant discussion, I think it's important to talk about the struggles of like, the 1% of the 1%, but I'm probably much more interested in the extent to which the 1% of the 1% are contributing to deepening, worsening economic precarity for a large number of people, male and female, and amongst that group of men and women uh, who have very different experiences, it should be said, and that the developing world or the global south is very differentiated, it shouldn't be presented as one group. But within that, women tend to suffer the hard wedge of it.
2: I think that's a no. (laughs) 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 Margaret.
1: Well, I guess,
3: you know, uh, in theory, I'm part of this elite, right? Because I'm a woman, I've been a CEO, I have, in conventional corporate terms, been very successful. Um, I'm extremely unhappy about that. Um, I I was reflecting before we came in this morning of um, an experience I had when I was a senior executive producer at the BBC, and my boss put his arm around my shoulder, because you could do that in those days, and (laughs) said, um, good old Margaret, she's one of the chaps. And he meant it as a compliment. And I think at the time, I probably took it as a compliment. And I can also remember when I was working in the United States, I was running VC-backed software companies. Um, My lead investor, thinking I'd been off on vacation because he'd completely failed to notice (laughs) I was pregnant. So I was clearly doing a fantastic job of being a guy. (laughs) <laughs> and and I have to say, this doesn't fill me with pride. It fills me with horror. Because I think the truth is that as marvelous as it is to see women at the top of organizations, the cost is very high. I think the cost is fundamentally, not always, and with differing degrees. But nevertheless, the cost is one of assimilation. And you know, to be absolutely honest, I didn't come into business to maintain the status quo. And I didn't want to get the power to run organizations to perpetuate the status quo. I always thought the whole point of being a marginalized outside group was to come in and shake things up. And I still think that. I still think the way most of our organizations run are or run is inept, unkind, unfair, cruel, wasteful, and unproductive. And I think that those of us who are on the outside probably see that more clearly than those who are on the inside. I also think trickle-down doesn't work in any context. It doesn't work economically. It doesn't work in sport. Having a couple of Olympic athletes has not increased sports participation or the health of the nation. And trickle-down doesn't work when it comes to women to ethnic minorities to any marginalized group having a couple of figureheads at the top it's great having the role models and saying it can be done but it doesn't move it doesn't redefine the norm in any meaningful way and I think we also experienced that under Mrs. Thatcher who was you know a a role model of female leadership that was highly assimilated to male norms and did absolutely nothing for women I think this target of 30% of board members being female will do nothing to change the way our corporations are run or managed. I think we need a much deeper, more grassroots uh, movement if we're going to affect any change. And I'm absolutely mortified and disheartened by the fact that billions of pounds have been spent over the last 20 to 30 years on diversity campaigns in schools, in corporations, in the NHS, in institutions. And we've seen virtually no change at all. So I don't think focusing on the top is going to get us to where
2: we need to go. Kimberly.
4: Well, so I think we're going to have a challenge finding an area for debate. So we're going <laughs> to have to look for it because um, Miriam and Margaret both said uh, exactly some of my sentiments, trickle down, Uh, feminism doesn't work. I would include trickle down, anti-racism doesn't work. And I would also say that some of the terms of the uh, question actually bear some uh, interrogation, namely the idea that um, we are in a period of feminist success. So success defined by what? Um, the idea that we have a sisterhood that we may lose. When did we accomplish that sisterhood? Um, And the remaining inequalities that might be left behind being framed as something other than gender inequality. That's also something I'd want to question. So um, I guess to to try to complicate it a little bit, I'll say that um, much of the work that, that I've been involved in is to elevate another way of thinking Uh, about feminism another way of thinking about sisterhood Um, I frame it as intersectionality, and so uh, I've been looking at some of the assumptions that underwrite how we tend to think about feminism. One assumption is that the universal woman is unmodified, a woman without a race, without a class, without a gender expression or sexuality. That woman, um, when she achieves equality, then we don't have to worry about gender inequality anymore. But it turns out that there is no such thing as a universal woman. There is no such thing as woman unmodified. And the problem is that so so many laws, um, so many um, of our campaigns tend to assume that there is such a thing. So in in the context uh, that I know about, American law one of the consequences of that was that when um, black women were raising uh, questions about employment exclusion discrimination many times courts didn't pay attention to their demands because white women were actually employed so there were jobs that were appropriate for women but they were only jobs that white women could actually be appropriate for like secretaries and front office jobs and because black women experienced something different many times courts would say you didn't experience gender discrimination you experienced something else but that something else wasn't just race discrimination because those women couldn't get jobs that were appropriate for black people either because the black jobs were for men those were you know industrial jobs so the point is that when we assume that feminism is only about a universal woman. We miss all the ways that women experience gender discrimination. Sometimes they experience it as women of color. Sometimes they experience it as um, women who are queer. Or sometimes they experience it as women who are working class. So all these inequalities that are seen as being left behind are not just left behind because there's something else. These are gender experiences as well. So uh, as I see it, the the real question is, can we use the notion of sisterhood to develop a more robust vision of feminism, one that is capable uh, and critical of some of the ways that patriarchy expresses itself across a whole range of differences?
2: The themes obviously change, but I think that that structurally this discussion has been going on for a long time. It's going on for five decades, and it it may have been framed differently, you know, in terms of the priorities that you needed to advance in order to get to feminism. So I want to just go back a little bit um, and and ask you each to think about the question of what feminism is actually trying to achieve. If you had a feminist society, what would it look like, or what, you know, what right now would you think was feminin- feminism's biggest job? What's it aiming at? Um,
1: I see the struggle for feminism as part of a broader struggle for equality within society. And so my utopian feminist society looks like an egalitarian society in which uh, there is a, a, a mutually defined set of norms in which one gender, one ethnicity, one power group in society hasn't had a monopoly over definitions of, I mean, in this case, we're talking about success, for example. Um, I'd link it a little bit to the discussion that we're having about sort of glass ceilings in the world of CEOs. I mean, the extent to which we measure, and you touched on it a little bit, female success on a male spectrum and the extent to which uh, we continue, I feel, to um, believe that if we just manage to do the same as men and play down the extent to which our femininity is a problem, quote-unquote, it's still being viewed as a problem, um, then we are uh, failing to dismantle the, the, the broader um, sort of framework in which our femininity is constructed as a problem. And so I would uh, not <coughs> really be a, a big proponent of this idea of we need to uh, break through the glass ceiling, for example, because the glass ceiling is, is what men have defined as success. And um, even when I read things, I mean, I have some sympathy for some of the most prominent CEOs, I don't want to uh, pick one out, but some, one, one in particular that's written quite a famous book about her experience of encouraging women to, um, what's another lean, word for lean, lean in? I think. <laughs> 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 no, well, um, not think who that is. Yeah. Not sure. Anyway, uh, the idea that, that, that actually if we as women just do more, that somehow we'll get to where we need to be, and I read this and I just think, I I actually want to do a lot less, (laughs) I really do, I really would love to do less and I'd love for men to do more Um, and I'd love them to do more of the, uh, in the spheres in which uh, despite all these advances that show that men are doing a little bit more housework and a little bit more childcare, that ultimately It's still that the division of labour is still so strong that in there are two spheres in which we continue to dominate the terms, and they dominate the terms in the public sphere. Um, uh, Maternity leave, the extent to which we have um, mentoring programmes—I think all of these seem to me like um, piecemeal uh, solutions that are uh, attempts to. Uh, limit uh, a, broad, a broader cauldron of discontent with the system itself. So, so essentially, you see, you what feminism is trying to achieve for you
2: is a completely different society, more egal- isn't It sounds a little utopian, but...
1: but well, I think, yeah, at the, uh, to the extent to which we're talking about ideals, yeah, that it, okay. is, it Margaret, is utopian. Is that, yeah. <laughs> is that what
2: you think feminism is well, trying to achieve? Funny
3: you should mention that, because uh, later today I'm giving a talk on feminist utopias. Um, you know, and I think you, you know, have a
2: blueprint for us. Um, uh, well
3: I could probably summarize it <laughs> um, no so I mean for me you know the utopian vision of feminism is the elimination of the social articulation of sexual difference it should be that when you look at me and you can see that I have female sex organs it doesn't mean anything to you you can't make assumptions about whether I'm you know smart or stupid rich or poor um, empathetic or logical, you just all of those kind of stereotypes and assumptions can't happen. And there's a really, there's a really delightful you know, um, book written by the American feminist Charlotte Perkins Gilman called Her Land, and it's a fantastic sort of utopian fantasy in w- which is about a country that's run completely by women. And, um, and there are small details that most women will appreciate, like all the clothes have pockets. You know, this is a great <laughs> leap forward, let's face it. But, you know, the fundamental point that she's making, and it's a serious point because she's a serious thinker, is that if women ran the world, they, the society would start at a different place and offer different things, different opportunities, and a different way of living and being than the world we currently inhabit. That the world would not start from a position of power, competition, and struggle. It would start from a position of love and fairness. And that the kind of fundamental principles of parenting become the foundation of social order. Now, to me, this is a much bigger idea of feminism than 30% board representation or a little bit more paternity leave. It doesn't
2: stray back into gender stereotyping in any way? Actually, it doesn't. What's really funny about it is, you know, into this all
3: women world, um, uh, land are sort of catapulted three male explorers who are con- who challenge all these stereotypes and they keep as- making assumptions about how it won't work because women aren't practical, you know, and can't organize themselves and so on. And the So the stereotypes keep being exploded. And one of the guys who's the narrator starts to realize that actually everything he thought about as feminine doesn't make any sense in this world. And it's only defined as feminine by men. And it's a really beautiful, subtle observation. The point is that this is a society which, you know, I think speaks much more to Miriam's values about ideals and egalitarianism and freedom.
2: Which you would plan to achieve, or in your view, feminism Mm. would achieve through achieving a kind of gender blindness that you started out with.
3: Well, I don't think it's about gender blindness. I think it is a society in which your anatomy doesn't say anything about you to anyone else.
1: But is it a receptiveness to it, though? Because uh, to me, the concern with gender-blind models is uh, the same concern with like the idea of, the, of ethnically blind models. Like, actually, people do see difference, and actually maybe true equality comes from recognising difference, acknowledging it, but being mutually respectful of that difference. Whereas the idea, generally, in my, uh, in my view, of blindness is the superimposition of what tends to be you know, white middle-class values (laughs) onto other people's notions. Yeah, Yeah. well, it's one model (laughs) that is presented as neutral and universal but isn't actually and speaks to one group's experience more than others, yeah. So I just
2: want to bring Kimberly in on the question of what, for you, feminism is trying to achieve. Well, you know, once once again, I I I see us um, troubling
4: the... um, conversation starting from what world it is we want to create as opposed to what we don't like about this particular world so i struggle with the beginning from a utopia because i do think that this particular conversation um do we want a gender blind world or do we want a world in which what has been associated with gendered female consequences, personalities, um, is actually no longer um, the mechanism for disempowerment. So what does empowerment look like is somewhat of a different question from what does it mean to upend the gendered order in which everything that's framed as female um, in this binary, it's not just a binary, it's a binary and a subordination. So I start from that point. Um, and ask what are the aspects of our contemporary world that we would not want to carry into a utopia, which is a little bit different. So I look at um, a range of social m- um, moments and say, where is gender playing a role in distributing burdens, um, negative consequences, um, uh, uh, life um, uh, altering uh, responsibilities on those who are gendered as female what would it mean not to have that happen so that that for me is number 1 and number 2 is taking that analysis not as a universal but integrating it into all of the movements that we actually now have so for me when i think about what kind of world i want i want one in which when we march for example against Um, state-sanctioned violence against people. Um, It's not just men that we're marching for, we're marching for women as well. Um, I want a world in which when we fight against gender-based violence, we're not just advocating uh, for women who are um, victimized by uh, domestic violence and private forms of sexual violence, uh, but for women who actually have experienced sexual violence at the hands of police. Now, that's a, an entirely different way of thinking about some of our traditional issues. But we only get there by looking at all of the issues that we have and ask, how do those who are gendered as female experience this? Right? So some of the work I do is on um, a campaign called Say Her Name in the U.S. Uh, everyone knows about Black Lives Matter, but they don't know that many women have also been killed in the same circumstance. Or many women have been sexually abused um, and and actually raped by police officers. It doesn't enter into our conversation about feminism because we imagine feminism only as taking place between men and women of equal status or in the same communities. We don't see feminism as implicated in the state's relationship to communities of color. So for me, my feminism is more or less what kind of tools can we have in the here and now to help us think far more inclusively about questions of not just gender, but gender as it relates to race, gender as it relates to religion, gender as it relates to class. And poverty. Class, yeah,
2: wow. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. To some extent, we have a notion of where we want to get to, and that is, you know, to put it rather simply, a much better world in terms of values, in terms of measures of success, in terms of tolerance, not just between women and men, but... but in, in race and class and and so on, which is perhaps I think I detect bits of utopia in both in both of your approaches. Whereas Kimberly, you're much more concerned with the here and now and the imbalances of power in movements that already exist and how one should correct that. So I, I just want to kind of go on a bit with the question of of how we get there and this question of elites and and, and non-elites because Margaret, you talked about having been a member of the elite and feeling that the price of that, if you like, was subordination to elite values and therefore no change. Mm. Um, So the question of whether breaking the glass ceiling really matters at all, whether it advances anything, but Kimberly, you're talking about at every level there are movements which have embedded, you know, b- b- prejudice and, and and oppression of women. So that doesn't really seem to get us anywhere. So I just want to just ask you, Clim- Kimberly, to start with. You know, it, how important breaking the glass ceiling is—that theoretically you get women into positions of power. Surely they must. It, that must be a good position mm-hmm. to change yeah. things. So so
4: I go back to Margaret's point that uh, trickle down. Uh, social justice just doesn't work. It doesn't mean that it's meaningless. So um, just for a second to shift out of gender to, to race, when Barack Obama was elected to United to the president of, of the United States, that was a glass ceiling shattering moment. It was meaningful, uh, but it was meaningful at the level of whether racial outsiders can ever achieve um, and and rise to the pinnacle of american authority that was meaningful for him and for people who are symbolically invested in that but in terms of its trickle-down effects the only thing that happened politically in the united states is that the only black senator moved to the white house right it didn't really change the structure um, of race in the United States. And I would imagine the same thing happened here when Margaret Thatcher <laughs> became. Not a
2: noted feminist in e- the exactly. conventional term. Oh, sisterhood um, was not. Uh, so <laughs> made so by. it basically
4: just tells us that yeah. um, shattering ceilings really won't do the work of um, deconstructing patriarchy or race. Um, throughout society, it it does it's it is a move within the elites to diversify um, who is elite, and sometimes it might have some trickle down effects. But that really depends on the policies that are put in place by the people who are actually able to break those glass ceilings, right? So it's just it's just to say it's not um, an axiom that breaking the glass ceiling actually does anything. It's also not an axiom that it does nothing either, so I'm not on the side of nothingness. I'm on the side, that's the moment where, if there's a such thing as sisterhood, one has to see it expressed. In actual policy, in, in, in using po- power to do things within the limits of what the structure will permit. And we don't really know what those limits are, because many times to actually get there, so much has been sacrificed that you can't really, you know, test how much would possibly be possible,
2: what could happen. But, but Miriam, given, you know, th- th- I think there's a, there's a conundrum here we talk about elites as you know powerful bodies that essentially shape the world so surely penetrating those elites matters in terms of the kind of changes you'd like to bring about.
1: I think women who are in those positions are in a double bind in as much as, as we already heard to some extent you have to play down the idea of your womanhood in order to access those positions you know, we hear about CEOs who, uh, you know, bounce back after six weeks. No, no one bounces back six weeks after having a child. You decide that you know the cost of not going back is too severe for your career. Like I, I don't necessarily believe that these are the kinds of choices that we b- would be making as women if we were truly powerful in the sense that I understand powerful in those positions. Um, and, and the other, so the double bind is that you've had to play down your femininity to a large extent to acquire that position of power, but then once you're there, you're somehow expected to represent all women. Well, no, you can't. Like, first of all, you can't represent all women anyway, because we all have, we're bound up in, I think, and maybe they will come to this, but uh, quite conflictual relationships, even amongst ourselves as women, we have differing interests. The interests of a CEO... Uh, of a big fashion company are quite different to the interests of a woman in a factory in Bangladesh (laughs) and therefore to suggest that once she's acquired this breakthrough via, you know, breaking down this glass ceiling that somehow that's a success for all women worldwide is is preposterous. (laughs) I mean, it's a ridiculous notion. Um, But I, I do think it's important for us to focus on the extent to which there are Uh, inevitable contradictions between the success of some women and the oppression of other women and uh, to uh, and therefore not to be too um, overjoyed by um, these examples of capitalist success which are presented as examples of universal universalized as examples of female success Um, and I I did want to point out that um, there are, there are also issues with the notion of solidarity between women in different contexts, um, that feminism can act as a form of imperialism when the cultural context of other women aren't properly understood. And we see this a lot when it comes to, quote unquote, solidarity with Muslim women uh, in, in the Middle East. I mean, I'm... I forget the number of times where I've uh, gone and, and spoken to women in different countries who refuse to identify as feminists even though in my mind they quite clearly are feminists because for them feminism is experienced as a, a cultural, colonial project. It's imperialism in another guise. In other words, it's an attempt to impose one usually white woman's understanding of what emancipation looks like on another woman and when you're talking about... Uh, usually a very secular context, that is a problem for, for example, women who identify as religious. Be they in the Middle East or elsewhere, I mean, that's not the only issue. Um, So yeah, just to throw that in.
2: Margaret, you Mm. did break through the glass ceiling and you did express Mm. your disappointment at at Mm. your failure then to change the world. I can't Mm. think, you know, you had... I'm still working on it. Eight (laughs) hours a day, (laughs) five days a week, why not? so, so would you, if you were doing that again, or if you were giving advice to the, you know, the next wave uh, that's going um, uh, into the trenches, would you, would you say that was the way to go? or would you, How would you advise them to work? If, if breaking the glass ceiling I- isn't it, what, what should they be doing? Well, I'm really
3: interested... Um, I, I think for women in very large established corporations, the opportunity to change things is, is tiny, minuscule. I, th- I see women doing, you know, some women doing a much better job than others. I think that's great. But I think really the capacity for change is
2: tremendously limited. How does this feel? Well the, right. the cult of the CEO, you know, yeah. CEOs are paid gazillions of pounds yeah. because they are supposedly magical beings who come in <laughs> and transform an organization. That's why they're paid in, you know, pantechnic and loads of gold. So and, and why f- can't a woman who goes in do that?
3: Well, you know, there's a reason they call it compensation. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, you know, the experience of most CEOs is they're pulling on levers and there's nothing at the other end. I mean, that's a whole different ball of wax, as it were. But what really interests me is I I wrote a book about um, the rise of female entrepreneurship. And I interviewed hundreds of women who, significantly driven by rage and frustration, left these companies and went up went off and set up their own organizations and they did that overwhelmingly because they thought there is a different way to work and I can't make it here I can make it if I do it from scratch and what was what is really striking about these organizations in all sorts of different industries and areas and so on is they definitely are better places for women to work they turn out to be much better places for men to work too, because women are actually much more demanding about their expectations of the workplace. And if you satisfy women, you satisfy everybody, right? Because we're just, we just have much higher standards in terms of how we want to live and to work. And you know, to me, studying this cohort of 10.6 million businesses in the US was probably the most optimistic thing I've done, because this is about 46% of the American economy. And they were at least creating different kinds of workplaces which treated people in a different way, paid them in a different way, thought about the relationship between the business and the community that it served in a different way. And I think, you know, personally, I think that building that sort of, what I think of as a sort of parallel universe, is more hopeful than trying to um, change these highly patriarchal organizations from within. Now, is it enough? Of course it's not enough. Um, And I don't think that, you know, totemic symbols like the female CEO of a Fortune 100 company or even a female COO of a Fortune 100 company um, is an indicator of change throughout the system. It clearly isn't. And the fact that if you're paid a couple million dollars, you can get to the top, well, gee whiz. You know, anybody paid a couple million dollars is going to find life a lot easier than if they're being paid about seven dollars an hour. So I think, you know, so I think, I think y- you're exactly right, Kimberly. Which is, you know, there is an intersection of feminist subordination with economic subordination, and if you're really a feminist, you care about all of the places at which that intersect. I don't think. You can just choose your quadrant.
2: So would you say that entrepreneurial capitalism, or grassroots capitalism, is a more effective agent of change than social movements, political movements? No, I would not say that. But I would say that I think it is a more
3: effective means of change than trying to change these large corporations from within. Because
2: they enforce conformity so rigidly. At
3: the cost of plowing your way up the hierarchy is so enormous that by the time you get there you're either exhausted, <laughs> cynical, or male. You know, really. Because, you know, the, the psychic burden of assimilation is enormous. You know, you so subtly pick up language not to use, issues not to raise. I, mean, I don't know how I managed to be pregnant for nine months and nobody noticed, but clearly my body language was amazing, you know? Because I kind of just made sure I didn't upset anybody. Now, I don't, didn't consciously want to do that, but clearly, unconsciously, that's what I achieved. There's a cost to that. There's a real psychological cost to being so good at fitting in that you don't stand out. But then, out.
2: What the, you know, given that every institution is male-dominated and therefore, I guess, has a culture which is shaped around the male psyche, you could say the same about getting the top of anything, university. And you should, because it's probably the case. So we shouldn't be trying to do that? Well, you
4: know, one of the things that in the, the, the academy sometimes provides is the space to do the alternative um, within the walls of the academy. So, I mean, let's think about it. Feminism is that. Feminism in the academy um, was made possible by the fact that there were women in the academy, who um, were clear that the traditional disciplines did not provide the critical lens for thinking about how gender actually is ex- expressed in society. So it, it becomes a, a different school of thought. Um, I, I'm part of a group called Critical Race Theory. We do the same thing. So, so, so the challenge isn't um, just figuring out whether you're in or you're out. But if you are in what are the spaces that are available to create a counter uh, um, project or counter way of doing the work while still maintaining um, the, the, the basic um, sort of performance that you need to be in that space. So a, a lot of us do precisely what, what you were suggesting. We figure out um, how, to, how to mentor in in ways that are actually more responsive to some of the needs of non-traditional academics and non-traditional workers. We figure out how to evaluate work uh, based on a different set of of principles than the ones that have traditionally been used to create the discipline and so on and so forth. So I I think that a part of what might be seen as feminist practice but not actually articulated as such is the way that women in a whole range of institutions have tried to figure out how to furrow in, how to be a part of, how to be part of an underground railroad, to use yeah. another frame, in, in order to, to not only uh, establish a beachhead, but to also have that as a point of entry and, and, and sustenance for other women who are also coming in. I think I sound, and I think all of us sound, you know, incredibly pissed off, and disappointed, and pessimistic.
3: I do think, to what you've just said, that what I've seen in the last 20 years in terms of the creation of women's networks, an expectation that women will help other women, I think this is a, a great leap forward. I think it is an underground railway. I think that's exactly the right metaphor. Are we allowed to call this sisterhood? I don't care what you call it. I mean, is it sisterhood? Yeah, I suppose it is. I mean, I'm probably prouder of the young women that I have mentored who've gone on to build their own organizations or who've had fantastic careers when you know, when I, th- previously they were languishing in pretty crappy jobs, overlooked and underpaid. I'm probably prouder of them than any fancy titles I've ever had right. because I think that's the job
4: as men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And on Wither and Sisterhood, I'll just say, um, Sisterhood is always fraught, right? So, uh, exactly. So, so it's it's not a matter of it's a kumbaya moment at all times. Um, Their sisters can you know really go at it in, in in ways that can be very devastating. I think the question is whether normatively we want to present for ourselves a set of expectations that th- we then hold each other so to. But
2: so looking, looking at, at where we are and this, um, where we started from, which was the sense that you know, women are getting to the top more, but this gap nevertheless, between because of the structure of society, the relationship of elites to, to the rest, the gap between women is getting wider. Do you see that as something that's, that's set to continue?
1: Well, it's not just that I see it. It's that global trends tell us that inequality is on the rise and therefore inequality between men and women. Well, on a global scale, uh, the uh, concentration of wealth in an ever smaller number of hands is a a trend. So, I mean, that affects men and women, but disproportionately uh, affects women. Um, So, so, I mean, I don't know if your question was about optimism, but what I would say is we're bound up in very complex realities. And so... um, every individual woman in her context has to apply uh, solidarity to the extent that is possible within the limits within sh- which she found herself. And therefore, that's why I'm generally reluctant to criticise other women who define as feminists, particularly publicly, because I reality, the reality we're confronted with is complex and, it, and it's full of... Uh, barriers to this utopia that we've discussed. So, for example, I mean, we couldn't really have a discussion about feminism without mentioning Beyonce, so I feel like we should. Uh, but, you know, Beyonce, to me, has done tremendous good uh, as a feminist model, whilst at the same time being a very uh, contested uh, feminism uh, feminist model. So, on one hand, you know, I don't know who else in pop culture could, you know, go to the Super Bowl with symbols of the Black Panthers and have white America <laughs> celebrate this and also have w- as one of her most popular albums images of, uh, of women who'd lost their sons to police violence. So taking marginalized voices and putting them back to the cent- at the center of popular culture through her art, I just, that to me is part of that feminist struggle that we're talking about at the same time that the video came out, there was this controversy that her new sportswear range was employing factory workers in Sri Lanka <laughs> who were being paid, paid. Nothing at all. You know, yep. yeah, Exactly. So, so these bounded realities right. that we're confronted with, so, but we have to, I think, acknowledge the successes where we see them and be open to criticism from it's a highly Sisters. symbolic <laughs> figure in some ways.
2: But there are other ways of changing things. If you go, I mean, in a social democracy, if you go to, the s- to Scandinavia, for instance, you find the whole atmosphere is different because there are, you know, tend to be half the government is female and, you know, you meet senior officials who are just as likely to be women. It feels differently and they have more progressive social legislation and all that sort of thing. So there are, it's not necessarily true, is it, that the gap needs to go on getting wider. Well, so my initial um,
4: reaction when when I hear the the experience of some of the Scandinavian countries is just the question of, does their relative um, lack of uh, racially distinct others make that more accessible for women? In other words, when we live in hierarchies that are deeply shaped by long-term historical race projects does it amplify um, difference such that it's harder to make the claims that tend to be made for precisely those kinds of socially democratic experiments? I mean, in in the U.S., one of the main reasons why poor and working class women um, were pushed out of the social safety net was because stereotypes that were attached to particular racialized women actually became um, a problem for all women namely black women um, had been uh, elevated as the women who were more likely to just get on the dole in order to have children. It was longstanding racial stereotypes that, A, weren't true, but, B, actually applied to all poor women. So when, when people think about, do we use our tax money in order to equalize um, motherhood, what's in many people's minds isn't the wife that they have, but that other woman around the corner or down the block so race actually played a role in suppressing a feminist possibility of far more robust state support for motherhood
1: thank you for listening to this institute of art and ideas podcast if you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion visit iai.tv remember to subscribe and review on itunes